Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Minute where we know you have many choices in air travel, and thank you for choosing us along with Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 70, which begins with Max going nowhere fast, and it ends with Max flying the friendly skies. Happy Friday, Julia. Happy Friday. Today is, of course, our guest episode, and I must say, our guest is one of my favorite people in the podcasting community, but he's also one of the busiest people. We present you Sean German from the Spinal Tap Minute, Five Minutes of Mime, the upcoming National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation Days, and the also upcoming Groundhog Day Minute podcasts. Hey, Sean. Hi, Rick. Hello, Julia. Hello, uh... All our friendly flyers, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here today. So my first and foremost question before we get started is, how do you find the time? <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy, and I don't always, but uh, mostly through support of the community, good, good co-hosts, good guests, good friends. We all help each other out, make this podcasting magic happen. We first met when you were doing the Spinal Tap Minute podcast with previous guest Heidi Bennett, and I think you had us on pretty early in the process when we first got introduced to the band, and then you brought us back for a later scene, but we had a lot of fun doing that. And then, of course, on top of that, you and I got to work together when we presented all about Movies by Minute podcasts down at MassiveCon in Worcester. I think it was uh, last summer? Yeah, that would have been uh, last summer. Man, time flies. That was great. Thanks for arranging that and and inviting me to join the panel. That was a lot of fun. I'm sure a bunch of people heard me listing off your podcasts and they heard the words five minutes of mime. And as we all know, mime is historically a silent performance art. And so you probably get this question a lot, but how do you translate the silent performance of mime into a podcast? How does that work? It's not easy. I'll, I'll tell you that. And it's something where we're discovering and rediscovering every week. So we're actually less than a year into the five minutes of mime experiment. And uh, it's a weekly podcast. And as you may have guessed from the, the title for the folks that, that aren't familiar with it previously, each episode is five minutes. And uh, it's some of it is uh, explorations in the history of arts and the relationship between mime and dance and acting and other sorts of performance art. So there's a vocal portion. So there's some talking, but every episode or almost every episode also includes some performance that is, as you say, is silent. So it is a particular challenge to communicate the majesty and the power of silent movement through a strictly auditory medium that is the podcast. We're continually discovering and, and rediscovering just how to do that in the most effective way possible. It's a process. And you've had the Groundhog Day Minute podcast in production for what feels like a long time. <laughs> you just recently picked up a co-host. I think that's Dave Pallas, right? Yeah, Dave Pallas. I'm very, very excited about that and very excited about the podcast. This was actually 
This was the thing that made me want to get into podcasting when I first discovered, um, well, I'd been listening to podcasts for a little bit before discovering this movie by minutes format. But it's when I discovered the format and that there were, you know, not just the the Podfathers, Pete and Alex doing Star Wars Minute, but there were many other people doing many other movies. That's when I first got the inkling that perhaps I too could be a podcaster. And my first thought was immediately Groundhog Day Minute. So all the other things I've done, all the other projects were really in preparation to prepare me for that. So uh, very much looking forward to it. And that should be coming out, well, we've been saying spring 2018. So that's what I'm sticking with. I will admit that I had never seen Groundhog Day until you started announcing that you were going to be doing it. And I feel like it's a bit of a failing on my part that it took me so long to see Groundhog Day. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So I sat you down and made you watch it. What did you think? I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I think it's going to be a unique challenge, and I'm very interested and excited to hear Sean talk about the movie, A, because it's a good movie, B, because it's a comedy, and comedies are particularly difficult because you don't want to over-explain the joke or anything like that, but at the same time, you've also got a lot of repeated scenes, right? things that are shown over and over again in separate chunks in different parts of the movie, so I'm very much looking forward to listening to you do that. Yes. Oh, I'm looking forward to doing it. And it's nice to hear from someone to to watch a movie that I remember, well, not really my childhood, from my young adulthood. Mm -hmm. And there's so much memory and so much that I bring as a viewer to the movie to wonder, does this stand up? You know, can it be appreciated on its own? Mm -hmm. You know, how in the vernacular, just how has it aged? So it sounds like you're saying it aged well. And, and and also someone who does a movie by minutes podcast and is familiar with the format. And I'm sure, as I've heard from others, that experience as a host has tainted or affected <laughs> or colored the way you watch movies. That even if it's not a movie that you're planning on watching or even listening to a podcast about, that you are analyzing in your mind of what's going on this minute. What would I say about this minute as you're watching? So for to hear you say that you've just seen it for the first time recently and you enjoyed it is encouraging, makes me feel that we made a good choice in a movie to cover. And uh, yeah, that is a particular that's for any of the listeners who haven't seen the movie. I would, of course, suggest it and encourage them to see it. I think it's a great movie, uh, Groundhog Day with uh, the great Bill Murray. Mm Mm-hmm. It'll be an interesting challenge. Like you say, can you cover a comedy without overanalyzing or killing the jokes or just the podcast evolving into the host saying, well, that was funny. Yeah. And then what what else are we going to talk about? And then how do you cover the various minutes or the various scenes that are recurring as that is a central theme? The repetition of experience is, is central to the movie of this man reliving the same day over and over again. And sometimes he does the same things and then sometimes he, he does something different. So how do we cover that? Mm. Well, you'll just have to tune in and find out. Yeah, it's a unique challenge. I'm definitely not worried about the comedic aspect because when you were talking with Heidi Bennett about Spinal Tap, you guys did an amazing job of celebrating the comedy without dissecting and making it gross. To use a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And your next project to unleash itself upon the world is, of course, the National Lampoon's Christmas 
vacation days, which actually starts tomorrow, December 9th. Is that right? Yeah. So we've had a sort of a preview episode come out where we covered the opening credits, but the first day of the movie is tomorrow. It's Saturday, December 9th. And it was uh, an interesting thing. It was, uh, this is something I'm doing with co-hosts Pete Mummert and Christopher Dennis DeGuardia. And it was actually, if memory serves, it was Christopher Dennis who first identified that this movie occurs over the course of 10 distinct days in December. And that, you know, this is a movie near and dear to my heart and many other people. It's an annual tradition in my family to watch this every year around Christmas time. But to cover a holiday movie one minute at a time, the obvious choice is, well, we can wrap up right around Christmas or Christmas Eve. But that would mean starting sometime in August. And who wants to talk about or even think about Christmas in August? I know I don't. It's too soon. (laughs) Yeah, too soon. I mean, the holiday seasons come out soon enough as it is. I mean, it seems like as soon as they clear away the 4th of July flags and decorations, they start wheeling out the Halloween candy. And then by the time Columbus Day rolls around, stores are already putting up, you know, Christmas lights and decorations. And it's just... The seasons are rushed enough as it is. I didn't want to contribute to that. And the other hand was, well, we could start at Christmas. But then again, minute by minute means we're finishing up, what, March or April? And then again, it's Christmas is over. I don't want to be thinking about it anymore. Yeah. So it was yeah, Christopher Dennis who noticed, well, there's about 10 days in the movie where all the action happens. Why don't we just do it by day? And this being a Christmas movie, we're aided by the help of the occasional shot of an advent calendar. That shows you what particular date or day of December that that action happens on to help guide us on the release of episodes. So what we're going to do is, well, what we've done is record similar to what you're doing here with a movie, but instead of minute by minute, recording day by day, and then we'll release the episode on that day. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation was released in 1989, and it just so happens that for 2017, the calendars sync up. No. So December 9th was a Saturday in 1989, and December 9th is a Saturday here as well in 2017. Oh, that is perfect. Yeah. And then the show will run to Christmas Eve, December 24th, is a Sunday as the uh, the last action of the movie occurs on Christmas Eve in the movie and we'll release that episode on Christmas Eve here in 2017. So nice little uh, synchronicity there of, of everything matching up as it should. I am so delighted by this. <laughs> this sounds like so much fun. I love the concept of releasing it on the same schedule as happening in the movie. That is just a blast. Yeah, it was a little bit of just a light bulb coming off that there are certainly other movies that you can trace that happen over a short period of time that happen over a few days or maybe the course of a a few weeks. But to actually be able to identify the specific dates involved and then sync that up into a podcast. Yeah, hopefully it'll be a nice little, you know, a holiday treat for people in December And yeah, it'll be relatively short. Again, it's just 10 days that the action in the movie happens. And then we'll do a little a little introduction for the hosts where we talk about, you know, a little introduce the movie, introduce ourselves, introduce the concept. And that'll be during the opening credits. And then there'll be a little coda at the end post Christmas for the closing credits. But yeah, just the action of the movie itself and covering holidays and holiday cheer and winter and the joys of cold weather and and all that stuff. 
Yeah, so check it out, folks, if you're listening to this on December 8th. Tune in tomorrow for the first day of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation Day. Oh, that is that is awesome. I'm looking forward to downloading that. Absolutely. And I'm not just saying that because I'm interviewing someone on a podcast. <laughs> I'm legit excited for it. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm excited as well to see how it turns out. I'm kind of hoping if it turns out well that maybe a little bit of a franchise, maybe there's other holiday movies that similarly happen over a, you know, a short span of time leading up to that holiday that we can do. You know, maybe something like Halloween will be next. I'm sure that, you know, that probably only happens over the course of a few days leading up to uh, October 31st. So, yeah. We'll leave it open for what's next, but you know, one thing at That's a time. That's pretty cool. Yeah. The um <laughs> All right. The the movie that we're talking about today, Mad Max to the Road Warrior, was <laughs> Oh, this isn't just this isn't just Sean German Minute. We're gonna talk about <laughs> Yeah, we are for the folks at home that have hung on this far, we will talk about Mad Max yes. to the Road Warrior. I was just about to say that it's funny that we're talking about Christmas and holiday movies because this movie of The Road Warrior was filmed in the wintertime down in Australia, which for them are the summer equivalent months for us because different hemisphere and everything. Mm -hmm. We start today's minute with Max dragging himself along the ground. He has just been in a horrific rollover. He has seen his dog killed and his car exploded. And aside from being beaten and bloodied and just generically injured, he's also very disoriented, having lost a lot of blood and just been hit by an explosive shockwave. So he is just dragging himself along. I don't even know where he's going. I don't think he knows where he's going. He's just going, I guess, just away from the burning wreckage of the Interceptor at this point. Yeah, we talked the other day about the smoke signal that he just effectively set off into the sky. Mm -hmm. And by the end of this minute, we know that someone with good intentions followed the smoke signal. At this moment, I think Max is thinking about the people with bad intentions who are also following the smoke signal. Probably looking for a better place to hide. Mm -hmm. I mean, that rock was good in the short term, but as he experienced, it's not the best and doesn't offer the most amount of cover. If that explosion hadn't happened, he would have been skewered by that crossbow bolt. Right. So who knows? Maybe he's looking for a cave, some sort of shelter, like you said, Julia, something that offers a bit more protection. Right. And he probably knows as being a loner of the wasteland and a bit of a scavenger by necessity. You know, if he saw a plume of smoke like this, he would go check it out and he would want to see what was causing it, where the smoke was coming from, and was there anything left to scavenge out of the wreckage. So maybe just, yeah, a little bit of that instinct of his own scavenger uh, nature is, is coming out of thinking, okay, this, this is, yeah, we're making a lot of smoke. We're going to attract attention. Yeah, I need to find a better place to hide till I can get myself together. Yeah, we've already seen at least once in this movie an example of coming upon a scene where even if the vehicles in question are completely wrecked and not functioning at all, there are at least things you can pick over. The Dead Wastelander by the Gyrocopters, the one I was thinking of, where he didn't seem to have anything of value in his buggy, but Max still picked him over. And so Max does not want to become another dead wastelander for someone to pick through his pockets and toss things away that they're not interested in. Mm -hmm. He's not about to make it easy for people. Right. Yeah, you don't last as long as Max has alone in the wasteland by being an easy target. 
it's this idea of Max surviving so long in the wasteland that's really got me thinking today. And maybe it's just a difference between me and the character, but I have to wonder what is keeping him going because he's lost everything that he desires for in life. He lost his car, he lost his dog, he lost his food, he lost his water. He's got literally nothing to live for, at least that I can see. And so I'm wondering what you two think about that subject. What is keeping Max going, in your opinion? Yeah, I was kind of thinking along the same lines. And it seemed, even thinking back to Mad Max, the first movie in the series, that that whole movie was tearing Max down, was slowly taking things away from him, taking away his job, taking away his home, taking away his family, kind of stripping them down. And then what I see as the theme in Road Warrior and the sequels to come is building Max up, is slowly bringing things back into his life to build up relationships and build up something to live for. But what we're seeing this scene, this minute, and this week is a bit of a setback. So he's lost his dog. He's lost his car. I think there is an optimistic bent to this apocalypse, this wasteland that Max um, resides in. Something optimistic about this movie that he does keep on existing, that he likes to play the tough guy, that when he's in the compound, he's, uh, you know, I just... Give me my gas and I'll be on my way. We had a deal and that's it and I'm gone. But he doesn't want to admit it, but there is something inside him that is going for those relationships, even if it takes an external push to get him to return to the compound. He does eventually come back. And we see that the relationship, the kind of bond he forms with the feral kid, it's short-lived as Max wants it, eventually when he leaves and the feral kid keeps coming back into the Interceptor and wants to come along with Max and he keeps kicking him out, but he gives him the music box. He gives the child attention in a way that, well, gee, if you were really that hard and you were really so set on separating yourself and going off on your own way, why are you bothering to be nice or kind? To these people and specifically to this child, there is that core of humanity. We are social beings that we do. We will seek out and form bonds amongst the individuals that is still there for Max. And I see coming out with his actions in the movie. And particularly, I don't know. Um, actually, yeah, it does come in towards the end of minute 70. We do get while he's on the while he's on the, the copter or the gyro and then the captain leans over and through his still blurry shockwave affected perceptions, the captain leans over and says, relax, partner, which I realize this is so it's the captain saying it, not Max. But that's something he's been fighting. You know, the, the gyro captain from early on was saying, hey, let's be partners. Let's join up. And Max is like, no, I'm on my own. I'm an individual. But they come back together just so maybe it's a bit of fate. But I think it's part of it is if Max really wanted to be alone, that he'd be more successful at it. You know, he's a very capable guy. Obviously, the fact that he's survived and to a certain extent thrived in this hectic environment. You can't doubt his competence, but yet he keeps failing at being alone. So maybe he protests too much bit of a situation. So from what I'm hearing, you interpret his wandering not so much as him eschewing society as much as him just trying to find a new home and he keeps going 
until he finally finds that spot where he's willing to stop. And he keeps running into different people, but it's just not quite right for him. Do you think he's using this wasteland experience as kind of like an extended therapy session? He's gone out to deal with things in his own way? Yeah, and I'm I'm sympathetic, although I, I'm not empathetic, because I cannot imagine what Max has been through and, and how that might affect him long term. So I'm not going to pretend to have enough understanding to have empathy, but I certainly have sympathy of the way the way his life breaks down in the first movie, the way not just what he's lost, but the way he loses it, the way things happen, particularly towards the end, the way he loses his family, his wife and child are really rough. And I don't blame a guy for being a little damaged after that and for being a little gun shy in terms of forming lasting relationships. And we get a lot of mixed messages from Max that he wants to help. He may not put it that way. He may just say, well, they've got the fuel. I don't want to be a marauder. I don't want to be a member of the horde. You know, I'm not Wes or Humongous, so I'm going to trade something for the fuel. But in the end, I'm just interested in the fuel. Well, if you're really that much of a loner in that situation, wouldn't your ethics evolve in terms of making deals and diplomacy and just taking what you want? If you really don't care about these people, why not just take the fuel? Why make some kind of deal? Why hold up your end of a bargain? I just think that the very nature that he is making these deals and he's not just taking it the way the Horde does or attempting to just take the fuel suggests a bit of an optimism and a humanity and an inner need for for relationships. Because even as as sort of abrupt and curt and businesslike as he is in dealing with the compound, you know, and saying this is, you know, this is just business. I'm going to go. I'm going to, there's a rig. I'll bring it back. You give me fuel, whatever. It's a very transactional relationship. But even then, like he could be nicer, but he could have been a lot less nice as well. He could have been a lot ruder. He could have been a lot more factual in that dealings. And part of it is just, he spends a lot of time alone where it's just him and his dog. So maybe the, he's a little out of practice in dealing with people, but then you consider that, which makes it even more remarkable how well he works within a society. He does end up leaving, but while he's there, he doesn't butt a lot of heads. Well, it's like Papagallo says, he is an honorable man. He's the kind that will fulfill his end of bargains. Julia, do you have any thoughts about Max and what keeps him going? I think that it is that humanity that encourages him, even though he doesn't want to, it still encourages him to form relationships. I think that's what is driving him right now. Even though he acts like he has nothing to live for, and this is very much his lowest point in this story, in mm -hmm. this movie, but that humanity is still driving him to live. Yeah. Even though, you know, on paper he has nothing to live for. He still feels things yeah. that drive him to go on. The more I watch of Max, the more I see that he thrives in situations where something is in opposition to him, where where he finds himself in those situations where everything is fine, nothing is really happening, he gets boring, he kind of stagnates, and he's not interesting. But when something puts him in a situation where he's the unstoppable force and he comes up against an immovable object, 
that's where Max really comes alive. And so I think it's that struggle. It's that idea that life is struggle and Max thrives when he struggles. Those are the moments that he lives for. I think that's what also keeps him going. Because you think of all these different situations. Max didn't drive around the Raider camps. He drove right through. That was a very bold move, Cotton, and it did not pay off. (laughs) No. (laughs) But it was a classically Max move because Max is all about fighting through life. You know, he doesn't go to the distant northern shore. He doesn't stay in Bartertown. He doesn't help rebuild the structure of the Citadel. He shows up, he helps people, whether he necessarily wants to or not, and then he leaves. And he keeps going because life is struggle. Yeah, and I think through those struggles, he's redefining himself and regaining a sense of himself. As, as I said before, I see this movie and the other sequels as a process of Max building himself back up into figuring out who he's going to be in this new world, what his new relationships are going to be. And it's these moments, it's almost literally like a phoenix rising out of the ashes that he comes out of, you know, he left the compound as we did a deal, I got my end, I got my gas, I'm gone. Then there's this explosion and he rises up into the ashes and, spoiler alert for next week, becomes the man who, okay, I'm riding the rig. I'm going to be driving the rig. I'm I'm back in the group. Now it's a bit of a solo mission, not completely solo, but it's, you know, it's a it's a side shoot. He's not with the main group of the people from the compound, but he's still part of their plan, which is in contrast to the way he started out this week. So it's coming out of that explosion, coming out of the fire and the wreckage, a change of heart. And and some of that may just be change of circumstances, that he doesn't have his car anymore. He doesn't have his solo vehicle. So he's going to drive something. Mad Max is not a passenger. No. Whatever vehicle it is, he's in the driver's seat, or that's where he's most comfortable. But I don't think that's only it. We don't see a scene of him asking, well, you know, my vehicle was destroyed by the Horde, but in consideration of all the value that I brought you with this rig, do you have another vehicle you can spare for me? He doesn't say that. And he certainly doesn't ask for a seat on the bus. Right. Like, hey, my car is gone. I've got nowhere to go. Can I just bum a seat in the car or something like that? That's not who he is. And I'm sure he's got to appreciate the importance. He's not just, well, okay, we're making a break for it. We're abandoning the compound and, and driving north. Even he's not just a, not a passenger on the bus. He's not driving the bus. He's not driving one of the other vehicles. He's going to drive the rig. So he's putting himself into a rather important and central position in their plan to survive. And that's a change that comes out of this experience, out of this explosion. And there's there's an interesting parallel that I noticed to the scene that we see this week, the way Max crashes, that it's the, the Horde is chasing after him or members of the Horde. Wes smashes his windshield, causing Max to lose control. And the car flies off the road and and flips over a bunch of times. And this is very similar to what we saw in Mad Max uh, around minute 45 after Goose is in his accident with his motorcycle and he gets picked up in the ute and he's driving back in the ute with his motorcycle in the back. And Johnny the boy, I think it is, that tosses something into the road that smashes 
the windshield and causes Goose to lose control and fly off the road. And his truck flips over a couple times and also ends up exploding, although it's a different chain of events that lead to the explosion and a different outcome in terms of Goose does not crawl away the way Max is able to. But I just thought that was an, an interesting parallel. Yeah. That is a nice parallel. I hadn't noticed that. Nice. I notice a lot of it in the movies, if if you don't mind, if I can digress for a moment and sort of just talk about my history with with Max and his movies. Yeah. Yeah. This was the first of the Mad Max movies that I saw, The Road Warrior. My memory at the time, and I was I was young, but I was old enough to be kind of going off to movies on my own with my friends. My memory at the time that originally this was just The Road Warrior and then kind of later became, oh no, this is Mad Max 2. It's part of this larger universe that all these movies, The Road Warrior, and I think it applies to Thunderdome and, and Fury Road as well, that they do an excellent job as just standalone movies that you can come to as a viewer without the knowledge of the larger universe, but that they also work so well as sequels that fit in in such subtle ways in terms of the callbacks and the parallels and just the things that we see over and over again that they work, they make sense as standalone things, but then when you step back and you look at them in the bigger picture, that they suddenly gain new significance, like this accident, which works, I think, perfectly well within the narrative of Road Warrior, but then to say, well, gee, wow, this is very similar to the way Goose went down. That just adds to it. And things like the music and particularly saxophone. I don't know if there's saxophone in this movie, but then that kind of comes back in Beyond Thunderdome, which works perfectly well as a standalone thing. I don't think people are scratching their head going, oh, what's going on there? But when you remember, oh, wait, the saxophone, the part that that particular instrument and music plays in Mad Max, the first movie, then just adds new dimension. That the subtlety and the way all these movies work together and the way... I don't know if there's another series of sequels that both stand alone as well as individual movies and that as sequels as a series so subtly work together with the themes and the various elements that kind of weave in and out of the storylines as well as this series of movies does. Yeah, and I think that's a major credit to George Miller as an author and a director. Mm -hmm. His guiding hand is so well observed in all of these movies that without him, it just wouldn't be the same experience. Right, yeah, absolutely. Which I think is particularly remarkable considering that for The Road Warrior, they would sometimes get storyboards and scripts a couple of days, day of shooting. It seems like this movie was kind of done a little bit on the fly. And he was a little bit, to some extent, making it up as he went along. So that's very skillful. Yeah, I'm always impressed. One, where just someone can create a work of art on such a scale that covers many years and many different plot lines intertwining. And then to learn some of the behind the scenes stuff of how it happens. And it seems almost happenstance or just fortunate accidents, the way everything comes together. But it does. It comes together so well. And my particular thing of, I'm a big fan of these movie by minutes 
podcasts of this format, of this way of analyzing, not just uh, you guys, Julian, Rick, and, and Mad Max, but, but the other podcasts as well. And I'm not as interested in what the artist has to say. I think I find it interesting. I don't know if other people would find it interesting that I'm enraptured with this movie by minutes format to the point where that's all I, in terms of podcasts, I've excluded all others. I'm strictly movie by minutes. Well, because there's there's so many great movies and there's so many great podcasters. So it's I can't even keep up with all the ones I want to listen to. Yeah. Uh, so there's certainly there isn't enough room for all the movies I'd like to follow. So there's certainly no room for anything that's not a movie by minutes podcast. But at the same time, I have no interest in the commentary tracks on a DVD or a Blu-ray. I'm not as interested in what the creators have to say and what a director might have to say about their own work. I'm more interested in what the audience perceives because, you know, once something's created, it's out of your control. And I feel that way as a creator. Certainly, I'm not I'm not on the level of George Miller or, you know, the people that make these grand movies, but even just a humble creator as a podcaster, I feel the same way that like I do it and I record it and I put it out there and then it's, you know, what people think of it, what the audience makes of it. That's, you know, that's what the audience is for and that's their job. It's really exciting to listen in and, and hear the things that you guys bring to it as viewers, as an audience, that I think is even more interesting than what the creators might say. Well, it's funny, we were talking a little bit before we started recording, and I mentioned I'm a little bit behind on listening to Mad Max Minute, but I just recently listened to the episode you recorded with Jerry Porter of the Indiana Jones Minute. And one of the things you spent a little bit of time that day talking about was the music box that Max had given the feral child and happy birthday and the relevance of that. And I hadn't made the connection to what I was thinking about this minute and what we were going to talk about for this episode. But then as soon as you said, I'm like, oh, well, I was thinking about rebirth and rebuilding and how Max is building up his life and his identity after everything that he lost during the first movie and and how particularly what happened this week and, and in minute 70, how he's a bit of a spiritual rebirth as he's crawling out of the fire phoenix-like. And then happy birthday is, well, not rebirth, but original birth, being born was what I was already thinking of. And then here's the music box that plays happy birthday. So was that in their mind? Was George Miller like, you have to find me a music box that plays happy birthday? Or was it just, oh, we want a little mechanical music box that will amuse the child. And we don't really care what the song is, what the tune is. Whatever they meant, whatever they were thinking, it worked out really well, I think. Absolutely. I like the idea of the rebirth because we get a lot of that imagery, that death imagery mm -hmm. this week. Obviously, we've had two major losses and then Max is really hanging on. And as he's crawling through the underbrush, we start to hear this uh, chirping noise that evolves into a slowed down engine noise. And he turns over and he looks up into the sky and he sees the gyro captain coming at him in a very slow motion. And it kind of reminded me of like a like an angel. Exactly, like an angel or a Valkyrie or some sort of thing. And I use Valkyrie because in North mythology, the Valkyrie comes and takes the warrior to Valhalla, and it's a tie-in to Fury Road. Pat myself on the back for that one. <laughs> but It's all connected. Yeah. 
the death imagery is very heavy in this minute. And the gyro captain coming and taking Max away from that battlefield, it's... An opportunity for him to heal, obviously, because he wakes up in the ambulance on Monday. But it's also kind of transporting him from one state of being to the other. Juliet, you've been reading Hero with a Thousand Faces, and you've seen the Hero's Journey wheel a bunch. Is there like a section on that wheel that Max is fallen into here with dying and rebirth or something like that there is a part of the hero's journey where it seems hope is lost things have been lost the way has been lost something has brought the hero down low Mm -hmm. and that is an opportunity like we see all over like we've been talking about like we see in mythology and culture and religions that is an opportunity for rebirth regrowth Forming yourself in a new way. It reminds me of boot camp, Mm. which I myself have never experienced. But hearing people talk about boot camp, half the point of boot camp, yes, is to train you to do specific things and to train you to do physical activities and learn how to shoot a gun and all of these things. But another large part of boot camp is to break you down so that the military can build you back up into what they need you to be. And that's exactly what's happening in this week, in this minute, is Max is being broken down. Again, this has already happened to him once before. And it's happening to him again so that he can be rebuilt in a different way. Hmm. Wow, yeah, that's a really good parallel to uh, the breaking down and rebuilding process of, of boot camp. Really interesting. I also found it interesting that we're getting a little bit of an arc on the gyro captain as well. A big part of that, I think, is happening through Max, that Max is, I don't know if it's the instrument or the impetus for that, but you know, at one point we see the gyro captain is trying to sneak away, that you know he's a little uh, sweet on one of the female members of the compound, and he's suggesting that they just sneak off on their own and they get away. And then, you know, I don't want to spoil it for folks that haven't seen the end of the movie, but it turns out that the gyro captain ends up playing a pretty important role in the small society of the people from the compound. So he evolves as well from more of a loner into someone that gets wrapped up and enveloped as a member of this small society. So he's got a bit of an arc as well. And I think this is the start of that. Seeing the smoke, seeing the signs of a wreckage, and then going out and not just picking up Max, but bringing him back. He could have said, well, this guy's been up and down and he's still alive. Somehow he he survived this run-in with the Horde. He lost his car He lost his faithful dog, his canine companion, but he's still alive. Let's just partner up, me and him. He could jump on this gyrocopter and take Max in the opposite direction and just continue going. But I guess, spoiler alert for next week, he's taking Max back to the combat. I guess we, and we start to see it a little bit towards the end of 70. We see him flying over first the Horde. Well, we, I think we just see him fly over the members of the Horde, but we know that they're camped out around the compound. So that's the way he's headed. So there's that evolution. There's that arc of, of change in the gyro captain as well. And it seems like part of it is 
he's kind of got the sweets for this one member of the compound. And if she's staying, that encourages him to stay. But Max is part of that, too, because here he is. He's outside. He's out of the compound. He's out on his gyrocopter. They probably gassed him up before he took off. He could just say, this guy's a survivor. If I could team up with this guy, you know, if we team up, we'd make a great combination. And he doesn't have a choice. He doesn't have his own vehicle. He seems honorable enough that he's not just going to hit me over the head and take my gyrocopter. You know, maybe this is the point where he's vulnerable and I can wheel my way in and, and we can be partners on our own. But no, he calls him partner, but it's partner back in the compound. It's partner inside of the larger community. Yeah. It's all about relationships and people getting along together. Yeah. I have a question. In the scene where Max is crawling on the ground and he, I say he pauses, but he doesn't really pause because he's not really going anywhere. He stops struggling forward for a moment and he rolls over onto his back. Do you think that he is simply taking a rest or do you think he already hears that slowed down mechanical chopper noise and is pausing to investigate i think it's the sound of the gyrocopter because we are seeing max in a double vision and it's very blurry we're not necessarily seeing max's pov but we are experiencing the same state of mind that max is experiencing so when that gyrocopter comes in and starts with that chirping noise and then transitions into that more deep engine noise i think max is crawling along and he starts hearing what sounds like a bird and then it changes and so as he rolls over i think you're exactly right that he's turning over to look up into the sky and that's when we switch to that pov shot of the gyrocopter that starts off in sort of triple vision and then slowly melds itself together to just show the one vehicle. Yeah, and it does look like as soon as he rolls over, he kind of arches his neck. He's looking up. So yeah, I think he realizes, all right, something's coming. You know, maybe he recognizes it like, okay, there's only one vehicle I know of that makes that sound. It's the gyro. Or maybe it's just, all right, something's coming and I need to, you know, assess the situation and decide how I'm going to defend myself versus the thing that's coming at me. But it does seem like as soon as he rolls over, he's arching his neck. He's looking for what's coming. So I do think that that is prompted by the realization, all right, there's something it's too close for me. Continued crawling is not useful at this point. Whatever's coming, if I need to defend myself, it's too late to hide. And he's looking. And then eventually it's the gyro in the middle. <laughs> you know, if, if, you know, he sees three. He's eventually going to be on the one that's in the middle. Yep. Right. And Max is not the one that's going to have a threat coming at him that he doesn't turn around and face. Mm -hmm. Max is the kind of person that is going to meet opposition head on. So it makes sense for me that he would turn over and see. What's interesting that we don't get to see is the transition between the gyrocopter arriving and the gyrocopter picking up Max and putting him on the gyrocopter somehow. We don't necessarily get a sense of if Max is lying across the gyrocaptain's lap, if there's some sort of stretcher that's attached MASH style. The only thing that we really see is Max... <laughs> Yeah. With nothing behind him but the ground. And it's an interesting shot because when you watch the commentary on the Blu-ray, George Miller and Dean Semler are talking about it. And what they did is they opened the side door of Byron Kennedy's helicopter and they put a board out the side of the helicopter. And they said, OK, Mel, lay down on that board, just sticking out the helicopter. <laughs> so Dean Semler took the handheld camera and he sat on the other side of that board. So that way it didn't flip out right. of the helicopter. And they would just 
circle around and do pass after pass with Dean Semler <laughs> pointing that camera down at Mel Gibson. Yeah. And it was wintertime in that area because Southern Hemisphere. But it was also a little rainy that day. Mm-hmm. And so as they were flying around, little water droplets were hitting Mel Gibson in the face. And of course, being under the downdraft of a helicopter and flying through the air and having little droplets of water hitting your face, George Miller put his hand out next to Mel Gibson's face at one point, and it felt like needles hitting his hand. And he felt bad for Mel because he was freezing that day. Oh, uh, yeah. To say nothing of being held up out of a helicopter in such a fashion. It was safe because everybody knew exactly how serious it was, what they were doing. But at the same time, if it was redone today, they would use a green screen effect. Absolutely. And I think this shot is improved by the fact that it was so practical. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful shot. I love that you can't see any of the apparatus that Max may be attached to, either in-universe or in real life. You can't see any of it. He's just floating out there above the wasteland. It's beautiful imagery. Mm -hmm. And another thing that I like about it is that Mel's movements as Max, he's dazed and confused, and his movements are going to be slow because of his injury, but his movements are also hampered by the wind speed that he's experiencing. And so it's that realness of him battling the elements around him that adds something to his character because he wakes up, or at least it looks like he wakes up, and he realizes where he is. And it's then that we get that double exposed shot of the gyro captain that you mentioned earlier where he leans down and says, relax, partner. But then when we cut back to Max, he's got this wide eye, and I say eye instead of wide-eyed because one of them (laughs) is swollen shut. But you get the sense that Max is really off his game in this situation, that he doesn't necessarily know exactly where he is and what's going on. But the gyro captain is there to reassure him and say, don't worry, bud, you're in a weird situation, just hang tight. And Mel's performance here is very good, I would say. Probably because he's half hanging out of a helicopter and being held in place by a single dude with a camera, but... (laughs) the effectiveness is there and this is definitely a transition point for max you know he has metaphorically died and he is being conveyed along do i stay alone or do i help these people that's something he's going to have to come to grips with when he wakes up like you said earlier yeah and i think it just adds to the angelic quality of the gyro captain in this moment that we don't see what's supporting Max. Exactly how is he attached to this copter? How is he flying? And I can only assume that from Max's position as well, that it isn't readily apparent to him. I'm sure he can figure it out, okay, you know, he's seen the gyro before, so he knows what's going on. But like, he can't see what's supporting him. He can't see quite what's going on. All he knows is this, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not quite a a cherub with a harp or anything, but (laughs) I mean, it's a bit of an unconventional angel, but it is this, you know, this voice and face and smile from above reassuring in its own way that uh, he's going to be okay. That pretty much brings us to the end of minute 70. And because it's Friday, we're going to take a look back at the week that was and recap it for everybody. So we're all caught up to speed. I'm going to breeze through this and then we can talk more specifically about it once I reach the end. So we started off Monday with Max 
thundering out of the compound. He went through the raider camp, caught up a bunch of other raiders that decided to chase after him, including Wes, who decided to take the Lord Humongous's vehicle, which did not please the Lord Humongous at all. But we did get a really nice smashing shot of Wes breaking the windshield, and that caused Max to roll down into the gully, throwing up all sorts of dirt and whatnot. He landed in the bottom, was able to crawl out before the toady and another raider caught up to him. Max was able to hide behind a rock, but that raider with the crossbow found him, killed dog, toady opened up the gas can, interceptor went up in smoke, and then that smoke was seen by the compound and the gyro captain. Gyro captain jumped in his machine and got us to this point. And that's the week that was. When I was asking for volunteers in the podcasting community to come on and do episodes, Sean, you specifically asked for these minutes. Yes. (laughs) Is there a reason behind that? Something specifically that you wanted to talk about? You know, I don't remember. I don't recall my thinking was at the time. I'm really glad I got these minutes. And I think it really encapsulate what we talked about in terms of the evolution of Max and the metaphorical rebirth as he is literally coming out of this explosion and rising from the ashes. Well, in particular, like minute 70 is one of those minutes where not a lot happens, but a lot is happening. A lot goes on this week, but looking specifically at minute 70, it's just Max is crawling. He gets picked up by the gyro captain. We see them flying. There's not a lot of action, but in terms of what this means, you know, this is a pivotal moment, I think. I don't know how, in terms of like, script writing and story structure is this like the end of the second act going into the third act or what you would call it but this i think this is certainly a pivotal moment in the plot points in the threads that are running through this movie in the evolution of these characters both max and the gyro captain so i think that's what caught my eye is that while there may not have been a lot of talk in terms of you know vehicles and weapons and oil refinery and and the other things, the technical details of what happens in the movie from the character side. I think this was a really interesting minute and an exciting week. So that's why I was glad to be here. And, And thank you both again for allowing me to join you on this journey through the Road Warrior. Certainly. I just realized something. Now, you and Heidi Bennett worked together on the Spinal Tap Minute for the entire runtime of that movie. We Mm -hmm. had Heidi and her co-host Molly from the Cabin Minute cast on for Minute 10, which was another minute with no dialogue. Sure. Very little happening, but incredible significance for the movie as a whole. And Minute 10 (laughs) is when Max drives up and first encounters the gyrocopter as a machine itself. Now here in Minute 70, it's another minute, a little bit of dialogue, not really much. Yeah. But Max is once again encountering the gyrocopter, but in a very different way. Mm -hmm. He's not so much experiencing it for the first time, but it is returning to save him. So I like that bit of kismet that you guys worked on the same podcast and we brought you on for these separate minutes, but they thematically relate to because I draw strange parallels like that. Well, yeah, you you did that on purpose, of course. Yeah, it's all all, all in the design. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Let's mark that down as me planning it. Yeah. Because I think that makes me look better. (laughs) Good job. Good job. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I like the way that this week really 
forces Max's hand. It's sort of like fate coming up and giving him a shove saying, you're not allowed to just disappear back into the wasteland at this point. You've met these people, you know their plight. In your heart, you know that you are a policeman. You are a person sworn to protect others. You can take the badge away, but he still wears that uniform. Like it or not, he still has that little voice in the back of his head talking about serving and protecting as an officer. And I like the idea that the mystical hand of fate is just not letting him run away like he wants to. Maybe it's him. Maybe it's the, like I said, winds of change. I don't know. But he can't escape it. And and one other thing. So I've got one more note that I wanted to make sure I get in before you uh, wrap things up and let me go. Of course. Going back to the episode I was listening to with Jerry Porter and his minute. And you were talking a little bit about that end with Max driving the rig and the smile at the end. I just want to say, I think it's a smile of appreciation that he gains a little bit of respect for the folks in the compound, that they did something that, you know, maybe not the best thing for him and maybe not, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not entirely truthful, but he gains respect. He's like, oh, that was the smart thing. They did the right thing. And maybe he didn't, you know, maybe he underestimated them, how clever they could be. Or in another way, how ruthless they could be in sacrificing not just him, but there are members of the compound that are on that rig. You know, he's driving, but he's not alone. That the sacrifice that they were willing to make, that it's a smile of respect. That he's like, wow, they, they did the thing that I would have thought they should do but maybe didn't think they had the guts to do it. The only thing that I have on my notes that I didn't mention is that anytime you see the gyrocopter flying at a distance, for instance, in this minute, when you see the gyrocopter flying in with the double vision and whatnot, the guy flying that is Jerry Goodwin. He was the stand-in pilot for the gyro captain, so wanted to make sure he got his due. But other than that, I think we've let minute 70 run its course Sean, thank you for coming on. Thank you very much, Julia, Rick, both of you. Thank you for the hours of engaging listening, analyzing these movies, and thanks for having me, for allowing me to play my part. I think early on, I was one of the people that were bugging you, even during Mad Max, of saying, like, you know, just, I need to be a part. I love these movies. I've seen these movies so many times. I want to be a part. And you were like, no, we're we're not doing guests just yet. But then... When it came time for guests, you reached out, and I'm, I'm glad you did. It was very nice having you on. I think specifically for this Minute 70 and this week as a whole, it was so heavy with the symbolism. Mm -hmm. And some of your insights on that symbolism, I think, was very spot on and effective and things I hadn't thought about. So I really appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. So, Sean, if people want to hear more of you, obviously we front-loaded this episode with a lot of the different projects you're working on. but what is the best way for people to keep up with what you are producing? <laughs> the best way? That's, I don't know. I'm, I, I should probably consolidate everything. Probably the best way is on Facebook for Spinal Tap Minute. We had a group we called the Groupies Lounge. So the Spinal Tap Minute Groupies Lounge, that's obviously for all things Spinal Tap and Spinal Tap Minute related, but that's generally the one place if I'm doing a guest appearance, for example, on this podcast or I have a new project coming out, that's the one place I'll probably post something. And then, you know, from there, there's also the five minutes of mime 
Quiet Storm is the Facebook group for that podcast. We've also got Gobbler's Knob for the Groundhog Minute for that podcast. And there'll be, uh, for National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation Days, we have the Jelly of the Month Club is our Facebook group. And again, if you're listening to this on December 8th, coming out tomorrow, December 9th, 2017, the first day of Christmas Vacation Days, check it out. As for this podcast, we will be back on Monday. We are going to see Max continue to fly on the gyrocopter for a while, but then we're going to see him wake up and just continue to be at the crossroads. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 7. 70 of the Road Warrior. Have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday.